this evening. In fact, I'm not really sure where I want to start or pick up. Tonight's going to be a little different um, than what we have been going through. As I mentioned last week, if you weren't here the last couple weeks, kind of tell you where we're going and what we've been, what we're doing. Um, we've been studying a couple different studies for the last about three and a half months or so uh, since we did our adult Bible groups. And for about three and a half months, we've done two different studies together as a group. The last one... My initial intent was not for it to last quite as long as it did, but the further we went, and there was just some things that we tried to do to be helpful. And how do we present the Bible? How do we present God and um, the gospel to a postmodern world, meaning people that don't really have a true biblical scriptural concept of who God is to begin with? And so we were there for a number of weeks, and kind of when I looked at where we were going to be wrapping up and finishing up, um, I thought, well, I don't want to begin adult classes and do those for one week and then uh, two weeks and then have Christmas where we're having two separate things and have a break there and then the New Year's and all that. So we're going to start that after the New Year. And that kind of gave me a thought or an opportunity to do some things for the next few weeks. And I mentioned to you last week uh, some of those topics and everything that we're going to discuss. We'll call them kind of Sunday, almost a little seminar or session type lessons that we're going to be doing for a few different weeks on a few different scales. Some weeks we're going to be broken up into two or three different groups. We'll put those in the morning bulletin and you can come and just pick which one you'd like to go to. We were going to do one of those this week, but uh, one of my other uh, people that was going to come help teach one of those topics is not feeling well this week. And so we're going to uh, kind of reshuffle and do some things but so we're addressing some topics we mentioned those things like grief and hurt stewardship uh, decision making how do we make decisions in an informed way biblically for our lives personally but based on uh, scripture uh, media and how it affects our own minds and our children just a number of topics over the next few weeks that we're going to discuss uh, but then there's going to be two different evenings where we're kind of all come together and uh, what we did last week, and then some of you had brought me a few questions over uh, the last month or two, just at random, and I told you to kind of give me the idea of what I would do a lot of times with the teenagers, um, is I'd take about three to four weeks a year and say, just submit me, give me some questions that you have about things scripturally, from the Bible, worldview, whatever it may be, uh, some 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 questions that you have about life, whatever it may be, submit those questions to me, and then we just went. We tried to take four or five a week, depending on um, the size of the context of what we were talking about, and take four or five per week. We'd answer those out, and I said that that's an important. I mentioned last week the, the number of uh, young people that leave church or leave their faith, or even as you would say it. And there's a lot of testimony from. Even popular people, celebrity people, I mentioned last week people like uh, Oprah, Marilyn Manson, and there's some professional athletes, different people that are very vocal about the fact they left their church, very similar churches to ours, what we consider conservative evangelical churches because they had questions about things um, that weren't answered or that weren't addressed. Even though they asked them, they were sort of ignored and pushed to the side. And sometimes there can be questions that are difficult, uh, especially if we don't feel like we have a chapter, verse, quick open, quick close answer, that can be difficult. And so we're going to do that some with the adults. And I asked you for a few questions last week. I got a number of uh, questions. And I, one or two were submitted um, anonymously that uh, 
um, I don't feel like they had a spiritual intent to them. That particularly asked me how I felt about certain failings of some of my sports teams. I'm not going to be answering. I'm not going to answer this publicly. Um, if you'd like to talk to me personally about that, I'll be glad to do that. So whoever submitted those, well done. Um, <laughs> but there were a few others. And some of them we will be able to get to in the next few weeks. Some of them we'll address at other times. These are going to be fairly rapid fire. They're not, we're not going to take any particular week and try to look at a, some of these questions. We could, we could do our own study on them. Uh, but to really kind of my idea is to give us a simple insertion, not a be-all, end-all answer, but maybe even a direction for you to be able to help take your mind and, and answer some of these. Some of them are a little, um, I wouldn't say lighthearted, but, but not as um, weighty, I guess you'd say. And others uh, hold a lot of weight. And so we're going to try to mix those up a little bit and walk through. I have... Um, six or seven tonight. I doubt we're going to get through all of them, but I have them just in case I can get through some of those. And uh, then we're going to spend a little bit of time in prayer uh, tonight for a couple of specific requests. And uh, we'll do that, wrap that up in the evening. All right. So why don't we start, for instance, and most of these, what I did to kind of, it's not just me just picking which ones we answer. If there was a consistent theme, like four or five questions got asked about the same topic, or it was the same topic but asked two or three different ways, kind of trying to address those first so that as we walk through some of these, we're kind of hitting a number of people. If I miss yours, that's that's okay. Uh, you can come talk to me, and, and we'll, uh, we can do that now, or, or there may be a different day uh, that, we can, that we can get to some of those things. And again, this isn't what we try to do is we try to go to Scripture for our answers. That's the goal. And uh, we're kind of going to wrap up this evening talking a little bit about how we come to some of those answers. But it's not just my opinion necessarily, and it's not necessarily the church's formal stance on all these things, but what does Scripture teach us? And um, well, we'll start, we'll start lighthearted because uh, they're going to get fairly hefty, fairly quickly. I had two different people submit this question, and they said it was the topic of dinosaurs. Are dinosaurs in Scripture? And at first, when I read this, I thought, eh, you know, we'll move on. But then the more I really thought about this, uh, there's a number of reasons that it's, an, it's a decent question to address. The primary goal in our mind should not be you know, is Barney in the Bible or not? You know, that's not really our goal. That's not what we're targeting. However, there is the idea and of old earth versus young earth, or what we would call new earth. Meaning, has the earth been around for millions of years, or has the earth been around for a few thousand years? Um, there are Christians that land on both sides of this argument. I even know good Christians that land on both sides of this argument. Our church, and within really our circle of faith, as you would call it, we, we line up with what we would say a literal interpretation of Scripture. Meaning we try to just take Scripture not as being presented allegorically or something else that we have to sort of uh, infer from it, but rather we take it as here's what the Bible says and we take that as truth and we take it seriously. I think that if you do that, you take the Bible literally, I think it presents the earth as being younger, meaning in the thousands of years rather than in the millions of years. And one of the arguments that people have for dinosaurs being in the Bible or not mentioned in the Bible 
people that believe in uh, the earth being millions of years old would say, well, no, because human beings and dinosaurs never lived on the earth at the same time, so they can't be in the Bible. Now, here is the, the, the broad-stroked answer to this. There is not a specific place in which it exclusively says, here is a pterodactyl in Job chapter number 20. You're not going to find that. There are some descriptions of animals in the Bible. For instance, there's Hebrew words that would be interpreted at meaning sea monster. There's one that refers to being a dragon. You find those in Job. There's actually 39 different places that words for sea monster, giant serpent, or dragon are used. And you could say, okay, that that does sound like a dinosaur or not. Then the other big argument is, well, what made dinosaurs go extinct? And you're going to hear this a lot of times with skeptics of Scripture. Because this is why this question is, it has some importance to it. Because here's the trail that a skeptic of Scripture is going to use. Well, did dinosaurs exist other than Bible? Well, yeah, yeah, they exist. We're not denying that. We find fossils of dinosaurs. There's even some places where there's some interaction between human fossils and dinosaur fossils and all these different things. Okay, yeah, well, how, when did they go extinct? And a lot of people like to make the assumption they went extinct sometime after the flood, in a, a, a dramatic climate change after uh, the flood of the earth, or that some of them were destroyed in the flood. And they say, well, I thought that God commanded Noah to take of every animal on the earth into the ark. And then the argument becomes, well, how could he fit these giant animals, multiple of them, all within their species? That's impossible for them to all get on the ark and all these different things. Here is the case. The Bible does not answer those questions specifically. Uh, But it does tell us that God created all living beings. It does tell us literally that there is a quick, in my opinion, a quick creation of the earth, and that God's in control of all those things. And whether they went extinct before the ark or just after the ark, I do think that there are some references. But one thing that you can really kind of speak to, and some people scientifically would say, well, if the Bible does talk about this, wouldn't the writers mention it very specifically? You have to remember who wrote the original for or the oldest books of the Bible. Who wrote the first five, or who is it attributed to? Most of it is attributed to Moses, right? Moses didn't live in the day of Adam. And Moses didn't live in the day of Job. Job is not too far after Adam and some of the early creation. And so you have Adam, you have Job, you have some of those that lived on the early earth. The writers of Scripture were not living during that exact time. And so they're not going to speak to things that they did not see and they didn't experience all the time and they didn't bring them up. For and say, well, it should have gotten brought up. It should make sense. Do you talk about dinosaurs every day at dinner? No, because they don't affect your life. And you haven't lived during their time. And it has nothing to do with, ultimately, the storyline of your life, the gospel or redemption. So we don't talk about them that often. A few of you may, but for the most part we don't. The, the, the bottom line, it doesn't carry a lot of weight as to the accuracy, scientifically or historic, historically, of Scripture. But there are some things that you could say, interpret and say, oh, maybe. That's about the lighthearted one that we have this evening. All right, I want you to take your Bible, if you would, uh, in fact, we're going to skip over that one. Actually, no, we'll, we'll, we'll start with this one. Look if you would at Mark chapter 12. Look there for a moment. Mark chapter 12. A few questions were asked about how, we, how do we apply Scripture to our lives that was written so long ago. So if it's written 2,000 years ago, portions of the Bible, um, most of the Bible, 
Uh, the New Testament, at least for us, is written, more, is written 2,000 years ago, and some parts of it even further back than that. How do we apply a book that is that old, or the context, or the culture is that old? How do we apply that to our lives? And that's a great question. And then another question was submitted along the same lines that I think it was phrased this way. How do we choose what parts of the Bible are applicable to us or not? And I know what they were meaning. They mean if you read Hebrew law, what parts of Hebrew law are we supposed to keep or not keep? If you read parts of Jewish tradition, what parts of Jewish tradition are applicable to us or not? And, and, and how do we pick and choose? Where, how do we find what we apply to our lives from Scripture? And then there was another question in the same vein that was talking about interpretation. How do we interpret the Bible versus applying the Bible? Kind of what's the difference and how do we decide which one to do? Well, the truth is, you do both. You always do both. And I want to address that for a moment, if we can. This idea, if you want to put it, if you're taking some of your own notes, interpretation of Scripture and application of Scripture. Because it's important that we get this right, and that we get it in the right order. Interpretation, you would define it this way. Interpreting Scripture, this is the process of determining what a passage means, or more precisely, maybe even what it meant as it was written to the original audience in the original culture and the context in, what was, in which it was written. And you have to consider a lot of things. Historically, what was happening? What's the literary context of what's going on? You say, that sounds like work. Yes, it is. That's why God says, study to show yourself an approved workman of God. It, it, it can't, a Bible student cannot be lazy. Now, in our day, in the modern society that we live in my opinion, it is as easy, I won't say it's as easy to study the Bible, it is as easy to access tools to help us study the Bible than it ever has been in the history of mankind. It just is the way that it is. You can get on and read uh, commentaries, you can read language tools, you can read all sorts of things. But interpreting Scripture must come first, always come first, before applying Scripture. That is just that is always the way that it should go. Why? Because there's always context to things. It's, it's you interpret it by what it's surrounded by. So you can't know how you cannot know how to apply a passage of scripture before you determine what that passage means. Let me give you a little example. For instance, the, the, you would read I, if I brought up a post-it note. I could write the same words on a post-it note tonight and put it in different areas of our building and it would mean completely different things. It could, it could get you in a lot of trouble. Let's just say I take three post-it, four, three or four post-it notes and I write on all of them in all capital letters with a marker, eat them all. And that's all I write on them. And the first one I take and I put it on a bag of those Christmas chocolates that are tempting everyone at the front of Kroger right now and uh, you know, the, and, I, and I put it on the back table, and, I, and it just says, eat them all. And I put it on the thing. Well, obviously, that's great. We're going to go out there, and you're going to pick up the bag. This is awesome. But let's say that um, Chris picks up the bag tonight, and he takes it over and picks his kids up. And the post-it note falls off of that bag of chocolates. And when he's picking up his kids, he sees a post-it note. He doesn't know what it is. He doesn't pay attention to it. He picks it up and puts it on the kids' ministry door and walks away. And then Jason goes to pick up his kids, and there's a note on the door that says, Eat them all. <laughs> suddenly, 
how you apply what was written has completely changed. And if I and Jason takes it off, he's angry and he's upset, and he comes and puts it on my office door. You know, you put it on some random bag of chemicals that we have in the cleaning solution. It could get passed all over, and dangerous stuff can end up happening, right? Like Boston is six years old. He's just old enough to read that note, and he may not pay attention to what it's posted on. Well, the same thing can happen, and we mishandle Scripture by trying to apply it before we interpret it. And that's important. As we listen to sermons, as we preach, as we teach, as we have classes, interpreting Scripture is always important to go before we apply it. Now, it doesn't mean it's more important because interpreting Scripture rightly but not applying it wastes it. All right, so see the difference? If I apply what I read in the Bible without understanding it, it's dangerous. If I understand what's written in the Bible without applying it, that's ignorance. It's stupidity. And so application is the process of putting the meaning of Scripture into the context of my life. How do we do that? For instance, Mark chapter 12, look at verse number 31. This is a very simple example. There's some other places that we go tonight. This is a very simple example. Verse 29 and 30, Jesus is giving us the great commands, the first of all commandments. The Lord our God is one God. Love the Lord your God, thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment, good commandment. The second is like this, namely this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. Now this is a very simple, I think this is a fairly easy thing to grasp fairly quickly. But if you were just going to take that one little highlighted phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, and you were to just completely take it out of its context in Scripture, and there's a lot of words that you have to define there. What does love mean? Because love can mean a whole lot of different things. And if I love some person, stranger, neighbor, person in my neighborhood, and I try to show affection the same way that I would to my wife, that's not a good thing, right? There's different interpretations of this. So love here meaning brotherly love to, to hold one up, to lift one up for their greater good. Particularly in this context, it's under the command of loving God. So I love God the way that I should. And through that, as God, I love others in the way that God loves them. Seeking their best as God defines their best. But then there's also the, the word neighbor there. What does neighbor mean? Well, in our modern mindset American culture, neighbor is the 15 people that live on my street within shouting distance that hear my kids in my yard. You know, if they can, well, it may be more than 15 if they can hear my kids in my yard. It might be half my zip code at that point, depending on the day. But who lives in my neighborhood? Now, for Justin and Lauren and some of you others that live out in the country, you have one neighbor. I have 15 neighbors. Some of you may live in a subdivision. You have 700 neighbors. But that's not what Scripture is talking about. It's talking about those with whom your life interacts and intersects. And so Jesus is saying, love those that God brings into your life with God's priority first toward them. And so that's just an example that we have to interpret it first and then apply it. What does it look like? Because it's great that I understand what God is saying. Love those that, that he brings into your life. That's a great truth. But if I do not apply it, it's wasted. 
right? If I don't apply that truth in my life, then I'm wasting what God has said. And in fact, I'm being disobedient to what God has said. It is not enough to understand an interpretation of Scripture. You must, we have to go past it to applying Scripture. And so interpretation without application is just dead Bible study. And application without interpretation is dangerous and can lead to disobedience. There's a lot of different places that end up being... This leads to a lot of misunderstanding. So what's applicable today? I'll take a couple more minutes and wrap this one up. What's applicable? What parts of the Bible are applicable to us today? Well, all of it is applicable to us within the right interpretation. But I want to just show you some examples of some things that can be some dangerous ways to handle Scripture. Now, some people have looked at this and said, well, I don't have all the tools. I don't have the know-how. I'm not a great reader. I'm not this. I'm not that. So I'm just not going to do it. Well, that's also against God's command, too. We're not supposed to be like, ah, oh, I don't want to make a mistake with God's Word, so I'm just going to close it and not read it. No, that's not what God is instructing us. He gives us the Holy Spirit to help us interpret it. And so there's a lot of misunderstanding that comes sometimes when we look at Scripture in an out-of-context, more modern way without doing the right type of study with it. There's three rules. Someone said there's three rules of hermeneutics or Bible study. Context, context, and context. So I guess there's really only one. But we first have to decide what is meant in one passage. One person said there's another important note is that each passage only has one correct interpretation. Now, I would say this. It's meant to have one correct interpretation. It doesn't mean that people aren't going to land at different interpretations. But in my opinion, as I've studied Scripture, the key portions, doctrinal portions of Scripture that lay out for us the character and nature of God and our interaction with Him, they do land in one area of interpretation. That is what God is trying to communicate. But I'll give you a few examples. For instance, you've heard sermons preached on 1 Samuel 17. And if you get up and read the Bible, your, your devotions tomorrow, and you read 1 Samuel 17, you read the story of David and Goliath, you hear a lot of sermons. You can go on YouTube right now and just search David Goliath sermon. And there's probably going to be a lot of things that show up with this type of mindset. <clears throat> How can you defeat the giants in your life? Yeah, we probably have heard a phrase, that, uh, a sermon that's similar to that. How can you defeat the giants in life? How can you defeat sin in your life? And then they'll go straight to application. I've heard uh, people that allegorized Goliath into the big mighty monster and he's basically equated to Satan and sin and temptation in our lives and that it tries to get us to back down and we need to go forward for God. That's not that's not what that scripture that's a that's a great thought and it can be supported by other places of scripture but that's that's not at all what that passage is saying. I even heard a sermon that talked about the five smooth sons and it was about a 45 minute sermon about the five smooth stones that David picked up to fight Goliath with. Uh, it was so impactful, I don't remember what any of them were. Other than, I know there was one that was talking about Bible study, prayer, uh, Christian friendship, and I don't remember what the other two were. And basically it said, with these five things, you can defeat any giant in your life. There's a problem with that. The Bible doesn't say anything about the five smooth stones. It has nothing to do with the interpretation of that passage. It's not evil to say that those five things, but it's not what God is saying to us. And that's the most important. People 
talk about David, make David the hero, then at that point say, if we could be like David. No. What would the people of God have read when they read 1 Samuel 17? That Not that David is the hero, but they see the difference between God's chosen king and the people's chosen king. God's the hero of that story. God is the one that is lifted and, and glorified. God's the one that David is talking about when he says, is there not a cause? Yes, there is. I'm going to serve the living God and entrust that He will guide. He trusts God's sovereignty. There's so many wonderful things in the passage that we don't have to run immediately to our own. Well, this is what this means to me. Again, can be dangerous. I heard, came across a clip recently of a sermon that someone was preaching about the prodigal son. And the person, it was this horror. I am ashamed to even tell you that I heard this, but I did. It, but the, the, a big bulk portion of this clip was dedicated to the man speaking about the absence of a mother in the story of the prodigal son. That mama wasn't around, and so she wasn't teaching her kids. And then he made some conjecture about, well, she was probably doing this, and she was probably doing that, and she wasn't there, and what if she did this, and what if she did this? There's a problem with that. Scripture doesn't, that's not at all what the Bible's talking about. Or somebody, for instance, there's a, there's, a, there's a verse in Proverbs 28, verse 22, I think it is, where it talks about, remove not the ancient landmarks which your fathers set up. You can type in that verse and hear a hundred sermons tonight that talk about not removing certain mindsets or ideals or traditions or even within Christian culture or church things. There's a problem with preaching that verse or teaching that verse with that application. Solomon is telling his son the ancient landmarks were property borders. And the way that they would do it quite often, someone would die or people die, property would change hands. There would be people that to lie and cheat and steal land would go out and move them. And they'd move them hundreds of yards away and broaden the borders of their land. When you look at the context of Proverbs 28, it's talking about economy and how to do good business. And he's saying, don't steal someone's land by defrauding them and by committing a sin in that way. That's what he's teaching. But we can rip that out of context and make it say what everyone say. There's, here's the major problem. You can say good things with application in that way. Here's the problem. You and I are sinners. We are. We're evil, wicked sinners. And when we make the Bible say what we feel God should say at the time, there's a problem with that. It's being filtered through my sinful heart and mind. It doesn't mean that I can't say some things that are truth, but there's other portions of Scripture of it with it. So we should first interpret the Bible. What does God mean to say in these verses? And then apply it. What does God want for my life from these verses? And when we run it through that funnel or filter, it's a whole lot less dangerous position than reading a passage and stepping back and saying, what do I think about this? What could I say to push what I think? That should never be what happened. And if you catch me, and I've told people like this, I've told the teenagers this when I was teaching them, if you catch that coming from me, Please confront me about it. I don't, I don't ever want to get caught in that. If you hear someone teaching in that way, there may be a place where we disagree or we land in a different spot on something, but this ne- we never want our church and we don't ever want our lives to be pressing our opinion or thoughts into Scripture and then ripping out what we think should be 
the truth is a lot of what we believe is right and supported biblically. We have to do the work to find where it is that God supports that, though. So that's one. Let me. Uh, that's one small. Let me do. I think we got time for two more tonight. Um, someone said this is a second question. Someone said, "Is there an argument, or I guess you'd say a uh, a point? Is there a way to argue the existence of God, um, the existence of a God, with someone that it's going to start with with the idea of?" Well, don't tell me what the Bible says. Prove to me that there's a God. <laughs> you know, that's a difficult thing, right? Because if there's a God, He is God. He reveals Himself to us. But this is a difficult discussion to get into quite often with people that doubt the existence of God, people that say that they're atheists or agnostic or whatever their flavor, I guess you'd say, of, of doubt may be. How do we discuss that with someone who says, don't use the Bible, prove to me the existence of God. Now, actually, we're going to hit this a couple different times over the next few weeks, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here tonight, but I'm just going to give you a couple logical things to, to think through. Ultimately, our Christian faith is just that. It is faith. It is faith to claim and believe that we believe that what God has revealed and told us about Himself, He is God. So whatever He reveals is what we have to trust. It's not God is not like the moon, where we looked at it and wondered about it for a while, and then eventually we shot somebody up there, depending on who you ask. I think, I think we actually got there, but we shot somebody to the moon, and then we actually landed on it. Now we can say this is what we like. We got things and we could bring it back. God, our relationship with God did not work that way, where man is seeking God out and finding new things out about Him and discovering Him along the way like we're great adventurers and scientists figuring out the formula about God. What God wants us to know about Him, He tells us about Himself. You understand the difference? It is, it is not that we are exploring some vast wilderness of God. Now, individually, there's a walk through our Christian faith that we can take at times where God reveals Himself in His Word and we discover more through His Word as we go. But mankind as a whole, we, what we know about God, we submit to Him because He is God and this is what He's chosen to reveal to us. But I will give you... Just a small couple things about maybe somewhere you could start with some of these things. And this is a big thing. For instance, Karl Marx was asserted that, um, and we're, I think we're going to hear more and more attack to Christianity in this way. Karl Marx asserts that anyone that believes in God must have a mental disorder. He, he thought it was an actual disease that people had um, that made them believe in God. And that if they didn't have that disease, they wouldn't believe in God. Uh, Sigmund Freud wrote that a person who believes in the Creator God was uh, only held those beliefs at a wish for wish fulfillment. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche bluntly said that faith equates to just simply not wanting to know what is actually true. Uh, those particular three characters they're kind of parroted now and echoed in modern society and education and all these things. So, if that's the case, they they would claim that those that believe in God are in, that the belief in God is intellectually unwarranted. So let me just give you a couple logical things. First of all, there's an argument for the existence of God, and you can write this phrase, that we are something, or that there is something, rather than nothing. 
The fact that there's something, and this is one of those discussions that can make your your mind hurt, you know, at times if you really try to think through about it. But the fact that there is something rather than nothing, that in itself is an argument that there is a God, that there is a Creator. And here is why, because it goes further than that. Why do we have something rather than having nothing? Who was it? Rene Descartes, I think it was, that said, I think, therefore I am. And he, he wasn't meaning to, but he's making the argument that because I can think about something, it argues that therefore I am something, because there's logic to it. But because there's something rather than nothing, um, it leads us to these. For instance, here's the four options that you could have and that, that you could maybe discuss with somebody. Well, what is reality? Okay, what is reality that we experience today? Number one, either reality is an illusion, number one. Reality that we experience, that we experience it's all an illusion. It's not real. Um, we won't go into all the argument tonight. We don't have time. That doesn't go very far <laughs> to, to argue that this is all just made up. Um, then, then why does life hurt so bad? Then why does life experience joy so much? If this is all made up, why would I not only experience joy? If this is all made up, why do I interact with others? It doesn't go far. But reality is an illusion. Number two, reality is self-created, meaning it's by self. That doesn't go far either because we're so limited. <laughs> you know, if I could just create my own reality, I would be huge and muscular and push mountains over and never have to work out and eat anything I wanted. And, you know, reality is not self-created. The, the two that, that you can get into the most with someone is, that reality is then self-existent, meaning stuff just exists on its own, eternally. It's just stuff is here. The earth is here, however it got here. It got here from something. That something was also something which was also something else. And no matter how you go about that, whether people believe in evolution or the Big Bang Theory or whatever it may be, they don't argue that there was ever nothing, but there was always something and that it just existed. But that doesn't really make a lot of sense either. And there's, there's a lot of, again, things that we could get into with this, with the earth. Science actually has done a lot of the work for us to prove that our planet and space and creation as we know it points very accurate, very much so points to not an eternal creation. For instance, if stuff or something was just always here, then why is it that it looks like things deteriorate and go away? Why does it look like things are falling apart? Or why does it look like matter can dissipate? There's all, there's all sorts of different things with it. Things can disappear. So if things are not eternal in one way, they can't be eternal in the other way. So if reality is not self-existent, it must mean that reality was created by something else that is self-existent. Meaning, if, if you think about the world, there, was, there couldn't ever be a time where there was nothing, right? Unless there was something else that created. Again, can make your mind kind of turn inside out, can it? But as you think about this, people that were reality, there is no God. Well, how is there anything else? That's a good question to start with. If there is no God, how is there anything else in this world? And we can go from there and, and walk through. For time's sake, that's just where we'll start. I don't want to go too far into that because in a few weeks we're going to come 
back to it. And I want to give a little time to finish tonight. But something exists. Nothing cannot create something. Does that, that phrase make sense? Something exists. You and I exist. Stuff exists. There's, there's carpet and wood and chairs and furniture. Something's here. Nothing made that. Now, that's not possible. <laughs> if something is here, nothing can't create something, and therefore something must exist. In turn, it's much more simple to believe that God exists than to believe that he doesn't, in my opinion. We'll walk through some more of that in the next uh, few weeks. I want you to finish tonight, and this is there's four or five questions that t- are going to tie in together. We addressed it a little bit this morning. I want you to look at Mark 3 very quickly. Mark 3 for a few minutes. Mark 3 and Matthew 12, where we were this morning. Mark 3, Matthew 12. And we're going to finish with this one tonight because I don't want to jump too fast. Mark 3, Matthew 12. Same account of the same um, teaching, the same story. But our passage from this morning where Jesus addresses the Pharisees regarding the unforgivable sin. And uh, we'll read tonight Mark 3, the other account of it, so that we have both, the one from this morning and the one from tonight. Several people submitted the question about what is an unpardonable sin? Is there an unforgivable sin? Is there a point that a person can go where they've gone too far and and God is not going to forgive them? Um, And it was phrased a couple different ways, meaning is there someone that could just commit so much sin that eventually... It's over. God doesn't. God, there's, God's just not going to work in that person. Is there a certain sin that a person can commit um, that, that brings about God doing that in their life, not bringing the Holy Spirit witness to them anymore? Look at Mark chapter 3. Again, verse 23. It's the same, again, context as this morning. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Satan rise up against himself and be divided. He cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter a strong man's house, spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sins, here's the phrase, shall be forgiven unto the sons of men. All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men. And blasphemies, wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. He literally is saying, all men's sins, all men's blasphemy can be forgiven. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. This is, a, this is a fairly simple thing, but it is something that has haunted and plagued Christians for a very long time. Um, I remember sitting with a an eight-year-old, a nine, eight or nine-year-old in junior camp one time, and they said, I heard, uh, I think the Sunday school or their pastor, they're talking about the unpardonable sin. I knew what they were talking about. The child actually said the abominable sin. Um, they meant the unpardonable sin, unforgivable sin. And they were so concerned. It's a little boy. I, I'm so afraid that I've done it. I said, done what, buddy? that I've done that sin. And not to play devil's advocate, but I said, well, what sin is that? The unforgivable one. 
Oh, how did you do that? I don't know. <laughs> what, what sin was it? I'm not sure, but I think that I've done it because I'm just so afraid. He was terrified. And not just for people for themselves, but also for others. Have you ever looked at somebody, and we mentioned it this morning, and you just look at their life and you just think, they're just, they're just too far. They're just, they're gone. God has let them go. And, and, and there's this thought, and we'll tie into it in a moment. There's two particular sins that throughout Christian faith people have tied to this. Neither one are an unforgivable sin. But very simply, I mean, just, just read the context. Verse 29, He that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness. What is the purpose of the Holy Ghost, the ministry of the Holy Ghost? Jesus tells us in John that the Holy Ghost is going to come to bear witness about Jesus. That's what Jesus says the purpose of the Holy Ghost was. He says, when I leave, God's going to send, my, God's going to send His Spirit. So God the Father sends His Son. Son dies, ascends, raises, ascends back to heaven. Then God's Spirit comes to earth. And Jesus says, here's the purpose of God's Spirit. To convict people and tell them and show them the truth about Jesus Christ, God's Son. And so to blaspheme the Holy Ghost would mean that God's Spirit speaks to your heart about God's Son and says, this is the way. He, he is the way of salvation. He is the way, the truth, the life. And move and convict in someone's heart saying, you need to do this. You need to trust. You need to have faith. You need to follow. Give your life to Christ. Submit to Him by grace and faith alone. Repent. And it spurs and moves in someone's life. Blaspheming the Holy Ghost is this. It's saying no. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Let me read it to you this way. I wrote it out to give some specific things. The impartable sin of today is the sin of continued unbelief. Meaning that there's no pardon for someone who dies in their rejection of Christ. The Holy Spirit is at work in, a wor- in the world convicting the unsaved of sin of righteousness and judgment. And if a person resists this over and over in unrepentance unto death, there is no forgiveness. And that's ultimately what Jesus is speaking. He's not saying if I say it once. And I'm so glad that that's the case. Uh, We could ask for a raise of hand. How many of you said yes the very first time the Holy Ghost moved in your heart to trust Christ? How many of you you said yes the very first instant? Not all of us. Not me, for sure. And most of us, it took time, right? So he's not saying, if you deny him once, you have denied him eternally. That's not what he's teaching. But he's teaching this consistent, I will not, I will not, I will not accept. That's the only sin that's not forgiven. Now here's what I want you to understand. The unforgivable sin, unpardonable sin, is not restricting. It's actually quite expanding in the view of grace. It's not a restricting view of grace that says, well, if you do this, God will not forgive you. No. Jesus is teaching, if you die having rejected, then you will no longer have a chance to be forgiven. But if you're alive, if you're living, then God can still work in your heart and save you from sin. Now that is a much more hope-filled view than the little boy who was not sure if he had committed that unforgivable sin or not. 
I hate to end on a darker note, but I'm going to because I think it will help us tonight. For many years, there's two things that people have thought are the unpardonable sin. And I don't even really, I, I, I know some sense of where it is. Turn, turn, if you would, to Romans 8 real quick. And one that people are often most concerned about. And I want to speak delicately and lightly because I know that different ones of us have had to experience this with loved ones, friends, in different ways. But the biggest question that typically comes up, number one, is suicide. There's, there's also an argument that people will make from Romans 1 about homosexuality. But if you read that entire chapter of Romans 1, it's not saying that God gives up only those people to their sin and leaves them alone. He's saying he did that with mankind in general because they continually rejected him. You need to read all of Romans 1. But I want to focus for a moment. The other one that particularly comes out is suicide. And this came up in a couple of different questions that were submitted. Can someone that commits suicide, can a believer commit suicide? And I think, I think we know in our hearts the answer to this is yes, a believer can do this. But there's always this sense and this element of doubt. And, and I want to handle this delicately tonight. And I would speak to anybody on a more direct basis if you're willing to do that. But I want you to think about I want you to think about this as we finish. I want you to look at Romans chapter 8. It's a sad fact that sometimes people do take their lives. It's, it's a terrible thing. Uh, the Bible mentions six different people who committed suicide. Uh, Abimelech, Saul, uh, Saul's armor bearer, Ahithophel, a man named Zimri, and Judas. Five of those men were noted for their wickedness. One was not. Saul's armor bearer is the only one that wasn't. But there's really not anything said about him uh, much at all. Some people would consider Samson's death an instance of suicide. Others would argue it wasn't suicide because he was, his intention was to defeat the Philistines, not to kill himself. But however you view that, there's just a handful of examples in all of Scripture. But there's some things that are clear. that The Bible would treat this as sin because Job chapter 1 tells us that God is the giver of life. He gives and he takes. It's his that has... It's he that has the authority that God gives life and breath to all. But the Bible also teaches that this is not the greatest sin. It's not the unforgivable sin. It's not the unpardonable sin. Uh, There's one thing I want you to notice. Romans chapter 8, verse 38. It says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall what? Be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to look at the very first thing. It says, none of these things can separate you from God's love. None of them. I'm persuaded that death, that it cannot separate you from God's love. It doesn't restrict it. It doesn't speak to a manner of death. It doesn't speak to a type of death. It says, but death cannot separate you from the love of God. Even as for as a Christian, your own sin cannot separate you from God's love. But His mercy and grace is far more powerful than any evil that is inside of us. And it is difficult. A suicide of someone we love or of a believer 
It's evidence that anybody can struggle with despair and that our enemy, Satan, is a murderer from the beginning. That's John chapter 8, verse 44 says that Satan's a murderer from the very beginning. It's still a serious thing. It's a sin against God. It's hard because there is no tangible recovery from it. Meaning in, in terms of while someone's still on this earth, it's hard. You cannot be made right with God physically and be restored when that's how you have reacted to it and when that's what you've done. But in no way, in anywhere, unequivocally, in no way in Scripture, anywhere, does it teach that ending your own life removes you somehow from the salvation that God has given. He says, no man can pluck you out of my hand. No person. If a person takes their own life, can they then pluck themselves out of God's hand? No, it's impossible. And so, again, none of these things have we been able to really get into all the way tonight. They're just brief, but I would I'd love to talk about more of any of it with you. But I just wanted to say that because many, several questions came in about this unforgivable, unpardonable sin, but then in particular with this thought or topic. It's not an easy one. It's not one we enjoy, but it is one that the Bible speaks to. Uh, you look at Judas, quite often people look at Judas as the example, but Judas is a little different. It says, Judas, you know, Judas is the only person in all of the Bible that says that Satan entered him. Um, and that was his reaction out of guilt and shame because of it. But it doesn't speak to his losing of salvation. And that's not what the Scripture teaches at all. And it's a difficult subject. But of course, there's there's a lot more that we could do. We don't have time to do so this evening. Let's uh, finish with a little bit of prayer time tonight there as a uh, family, as a, a couple, or if you want to pray with friends tonight. Uh, one main... Add on, two, two add on prayer requests, if you will. We mentioned Peggy Wharton on Wednesday that um, she had had COVID and uh, she was going home from the hospital and it's, it seems to be uh, getting better, so we're excited and, and thankful for that. Some of you had asked about an update about her this morning. But then if you would pray for Guillermo, our Spanish pastor here, his brother, he has, his, I believe it's his youngest brother, I was talking to him this afternoon, was in a um, a motorcycle accident this afternoon. And there's not a lot of detail yet, but it appears that he's hurt um, pretty badly. Um, we had joined, and I thought that he had come to see he hasn't. He's still in Guatemala. He's a teenager. Um, and so if you would, his name is Axel. And so if you would pray for him, pray for Guillermo. Guillermo's trying to decide uh, what to do if he needs to go there. He's trying to assess quite how bad, uh, badly hurt he is. And so he's trying to decide if if he needs to be uh, needs to go home back to Guatemala to see his brother, those kind of things. Just a difficult situation. And so if you would, pray for him. And then these last few weeks, we've been praying about people that we can introduce to uh, the Lord. And tonight, what I'd like you to do is, there amongst yourselves, name those people. It doesn't have to be every detail about them, but first name. And uh, pray for one of them. The five people that you wrote on your list, I hope you put five people on there. Uh, pick one and spend a moment or two and pray for them tonight, for their mind, their heart, for their soul. Pray that God will bring things into their lives this week that would point their eyes toward Him and then that He would use us uh, to guide them that way. But let's spend um, three or four minutes in prayer and then we'll, we'll be dismissed, okay?